I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne is long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Those are verses 34 to 37 of Psalm 89, verses 19 to 52 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, September the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Hosea today in chapter four, verses, or chapter 2, sorry, verses 14 to 23. The gospel reading today is from Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, we're in chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. Since uh, I did Hosea yesterday, um, I, I had, Suzanne and I were out walking, and I had a um, sort of an epiphany about Hosea that I had never really thought about before or even considered, to be honest with you, and that is is that Hosea is very, very much a type of Christ, because what he was, in, what he was supposed to do was to go and make himself one with a, uh, a woman of whoredom, and, and what that means in context is is that that she is unfaithful in in uh, her faith. She's unfaithful to Yahweh, and she was a symbol of the nation's unfaithfulness. So he was not supposed to go and find a faithful woman. He was supposed to go find a an unfaithful woman and marry her. In the same way, the incarnation and the crucifixion are and the baptism of Jesus, actually, are all symbols of Jesus being united one with humanity, sinful humanity. And so Hosea is intended to do that. And even when that wife goes astray and becomes an unfaithful woman, he is, is he's to take her back. So she's, he's a type of Christ, but he's also a, he's portraying God's relationship with the nation. And so he is clearly a type of Christ, and the word, the name Hosea, very much like Yehoshua, it's it's very similar in meaning as well. And so it's pretty amazing how close these parallels are. And so here the announcement is made after Israel has gone astray. God says, "There, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her." Now, by this point in time, it, it was clear to everybody that the most blessed time for the nation was actually when they were in the wilderness. It was just them and God. And so when he says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her, he, he is wooing her. Wayward Israel, the, the wayward covenant partner that God loves, he's bringing, he's, he's wooing her back. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Ahor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so, in other words, he will betroth her to himself, because that's exactly what they say happened at Mount Sinai. It's, it's a wedding ceremony, a covenant between the nation and God, who will be their husband at that time. And in that day, he says, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So he's always been the husband. Same with, with Hosea, whose wife goes astray. He is still her husband. The marriage hasn't been dissolved. But in that interim period, he says, you called me my Baal, but I'm not your Baal. That's not who I am. You failed to recognize me is what you've done. Th- then once I woo you and take you into the wilderness and bring you back, then you'll know that I've always been your husband. 
for I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground, all those other little parts of creation that are in the land, and I'll abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. That I will make you lie down in safety sounds very much like, hmm, oh, Psalm 23, <laughs> doesn't it? I'll make you lie down in safety. He maketh me lie down beside still waters. It, 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 he maketh me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. It's that image. And, but this whole thing, a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground, that goes back to Genesis 9. That goes back to the flood, to the covenant that God made with all things after the flood, that he would not do that again. And then goes on to say, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. So what did it do? What did he do in Genesis 9 in that covenant? He hung his bow in the clouds. The word is not rainbow. It's a bow. It's a battle bow. But the symbol of that is the rainbow. And so I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I'll make you lie down in safety. I mean, you've got Genesis 9 and Psalm 23 and all this there, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. These are all characteristics that God has for himself when he reveals himself on Mount Sinai to Moses after the sin of the golden calf. Those words all come from that passage. And you shall know the Lord. And that's another promise going all the way back to Deuteronomy. They shall all know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. So what he's saying is, is it will be this blessed experience of fruitfulness in all things. It will be as in the days of Eden. It will be that sort of thing, uh, environment in the world. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What a beautiful, beautiful passage of reversal of everything. God says, this is going to be the, the, the way it needs to be acted out. Jose, you're going to marry this woman who is a woman of whoredom. You're going to have children of whoredom, and you're going to give them these names. You're going to call them Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. But my plan is to reverse that, that they will no longer be that, and no longer will I be their Baal, I will be their God, I will be their husband. It's a beautiful, beautiful image of God doing what's necessary to get his wayward people back to himself, which means that he has to punish them, and they'll have to be driven out of the land, and they'll have to go into the metaphorical wilderness before they recover. But it's a good thing because he's taking them there. It won't feel like it, and it takes perseverance and it takes faith sometimes to, to do that, to go into that place of wilderness, to go into that uh, valley of the shadow of death with God. Sometimes it's the most difficult thing because we think God's abandoned us, but what, no, what he's saying is, I haven't abandoned you, I'm taking you to myself, just me and you. And sometimes that requires us to go through very difficult things in order to get to a place where we have, have won and, and celebrate that intimacy of relationship with God that he wants so desperately for us, and he wants desperately himself. And that's what he says to Hosea, I will ultimately do. 
There's going to be pain in the short term, but the long-term thing is I intend to make you my bride. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. In uh, Luke's Gospel today in chapter 5, it's one of my favorite passages, actually. This is on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, he's already healed Simon's wife, remember? He, not his wife, his mother-in-law, mother-in-law. So he, was, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. They were done fishing. They were preparing the nets so that when they came the next evening, everything would be ready. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. So Simon has to get into the boat, goes out in the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. So we know, like I said, that he's seen a healing. He saw God heal his mother, or saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law, and and now he's heard him teach. And so he he has seen enough and heard enough that he's willing to do this, even in spite of the fact that he's basically saying, uh, 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 Rabbi, uh, we are fishermen. And we have toiled all night and we took nothing. But, hey, because you said so, I'll let down the nets. How about that? And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It's the same basic reaction that... that um, Isaiah has, when he, in Isaiah 6, when he is in the temple praying after King Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filling the temple, and then the cherubim flying in the temple, crying, holy, holy, holy. And what is his response? Which is to say, I'm a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. And then God sends the cherub to take one of the sense, one of the pieces of coal from the altar and press it against his lips to cleanse his lips and now his lips are to be used in the service of God because that's what he said the problem was right I'm a man of unclean lips and he says all right I'm going to cleanse your lips and then I'm going to use your lips you're going to be my voice to the people and so here what happens is is that that he Peter says depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He, he recognizes something in Jesus. Like I said, this is not his first encounter. So he recognizes something deep, deep, deep in Jesus. And he's making a confession here uh, of his own sins, but who he believes Jesus to be as well. It says, the reason he did it, for he and all, all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. In other words, in the same way that, that the Lord cleansed the lips of Isaiah and then said, now they belong to me, you go use them for that purpose. He says, here, Jesus says to Peter, you're right, now you belong to me. But you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going to catch men. It's going to be a, a lot of the same tactics, but, but you're going to catch men from now on. In the same way, Isaiah is told to go and use the lips that God has cleansed for his glory. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What a beautiful, beautiful moment that is. I mean, but both these first two passages are incredibly beautiful, and so is the epistle from uh, the, the reading from the book of Acts. Um, 
because it's Paul's farewell to the people that he has spent so much time with in Ephesus. Remember, he spent about three and a half years there total. Um, and so now he, he is not going to Ephesus because he, the reason he chose not to go to Ephesus is because he knew he'd be delayed. It's like I've got a friend that when we walk out at the Arboretum, uh, have friends Tom and Susie who we see out there pretty frequently. Will and I uh, used to see them. I, I, I had known Tom from the gym, and um, I didn't know Susie, though. And so when, when we would walk, um, Will and I would run into them, and we ended up spending a lot of time talking to Tom and Susie. And now Suzanne and I go out, and we run into Tom and Susie, and we talk to them as well. But but we both, as much as we love talking, Tom and I, um, it, our wives probably are not that thrilled about it. And uh, so we, we kind of limit our time. So we, ha- we have to find other times and places to, to visit with one another. And it's largely because they've got dogs, and one of those dogs is quite old and probably not going to live very much longer. And so it, the heat's hard on him. But because we enjoy being together. So here, it's sort of like occasionally, you know, I, I do Tom and Susie a favor, and I say, Suzanne, let's go somewhere else and walk today so that they can get home if I know they have things to do that particular day. So it, it's the same with Paul. He, he knows if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to get hung up there, and he, he is determined he's going to get to Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So what does he mean when he says he did it with all humility and tears? I mean, I, I'm positive Paul gave blood, sweat, and tears for these people and for the gospel because he cared that much for them. And so he poured out everything that he had for these people in Ephesus. And, and, and he says, you know about the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So I taught you everywhere I could possibly be, I taught, testifying both the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, it didn't matter who it was. I was not equal opportunity offender. I, you know, I, I told him about sin, and I told him about faith, and I told him about reconciliation. It, but it's all in Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. So the Spirit is leading me there, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, most of us don't go headlong into those things. It, you know, as I've said this before, that, you know, Agabus comes and he binds, he takes Paul's belt, he binds his hands, and such is going to happen to the man that owns the belt when he goes to Jerusalem and all that. And so Paul knew what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem, but he knew that God was leading him to Jerusalem. If we, if we know anything about Paul from the book of Acts, what we know is, is, is that, that he did what the Spirit allowed him to do or led him to do, because we're told on multiple occasions that the Spirit prevented him from going somewhere. So the fact that he is doing what Jesus did before the crucifixion, he set his face for Jerusalem, and that's what Paul's doing. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified, but he set his face to Jerusalem. He was determined to go there. Paul says the same thing. Imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I've set my face to Jerusalem, and I'm going there. He said, but it's okay, because I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. He's not saying his life doesn't have value. He said it doesn't even value to himself. His life belongs to God. 
If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I'm never coming back. I know it. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And again, that's a reference to Ezekiel, where God tells the prophet that he's to go and share this message with people who will not listen. And if he sees somebody in sin, he's supposed to go and speak to that person and and tell them of their sin, and the hope is that they will repent. And he says, if you do that and they don't repent, that sin lands on them. If you don't do it when I tell you to, that sin lands on you, Ezekiel. So Paul's saying here, I'm innocent. I'm absolutely innocent because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the full counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These are the leaders of the church at Ephesus, is what we were told. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He knows this in the same way he knows what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He knows it is as sure as the, as the day is long, because he's seen it everywhere he's ever been. But what he's saying, that they will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. It happens over and over and over. You know, churches will rise up. There'll be great churches. And then and then somewhere along the way, that leader is going to go one way or another. And, and then behind them comes somebody who will lead them completely astray. I saw it happen at a church that we belonged to years ago. We had a good, solid guy who was the leader of the church. When he left, the bishop brought in a woman who was, I'm telling you, I I would say she's not even a believer, not in any recognizable sense that I have anyway of what it means to believe a believer in Jesus. And then they finally, they called another guy, and he was equally bad. And it went away that quick. A great church became something that was sad. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day, night or day to admonish everyone, again, with tears. Paul, Paul poured everything he had into the work that he did. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I, 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 didn't, I didn't want anything from anybody. I didn't ask anything from anybody. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. He's going to say the same thing to the Thessalonian church, right? The people in Thessalonica, he says, hey, he said, I hear there are people among you who think the end is so near that they're not even working and they want to be um, uh, dealt with and and provided for by the community. Uh Uh-uh. Not how it works. If you don't work, you don't eat. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He says, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, doing this tent making, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. In Judaism, there's an understanding in Judaism about this giving and receiving thing, that that, that when you give to the poor, you receive something as well. That, that, it's, that that poor person is actually doing you a favor by being available for you to give something to. Because you're fulfilling a mitzvah by giving to the poor. And that poor person 
is not to be looked down upon because that poor person provided you an opportunity to fulfill an obligation you have. Paul says, okay, but that can be abused, right? That can be abused. You can be the person who says, well, I'll be the person that provides all the blessings in the world to all these people. That, it was okay if you had physical impediments to being able to work for a living. It was okay for you to beg. Otherwise, no. So when Jesus healed the blind guy, when he healed any blind person, when he healed anybody who was lame or whatever, those people then, their lives had to change because they had to work. Now, this is prior to his death, resurrection, the formation of the church, and all that kind of stuff. So Paul's saying here, I see something that I don't like, and I set an example for you by being the person who, who did work and that allowed me to give, and that is more blessed. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. They loved Paul, and Paul loved them. The fact that he spent so much time in, in Ephesus and spent all this time, he speaks about tears, and you can hear in his voice the pain of what he knows is going to happen to them. He says, look, I know what's going to happen to me when I go to Jerusalem. I'm fully aware of that, but I'm also fully aware of what's going to happen to you. And so I'm giving you a warning now, and I want you to be good leaders. And I know some of you are going to fail. And it's important for us to always remember that and to guard our hearts, to guard our minds, and to make sure that we know the truth. Because if we don't, then we can be deceived and we can be taken away just as Paul says people can be. Don't, don't allow yourself to be drawn away through twisted things and don't allow others to be drawn away in that way either. Always be prepared to give an accounting of the hope that lives in you, but always also be prepared to defend the Word of God, even in the church.